the UFO cover-up is very significant. Um, it, it has required the creation, or at least it's been assisted by the creation of a kind of secret government beyond the government. Yeah. I mean, think about something that's this important that is not allowed to be on the table of public discourse. And, and just stop and think about how significant that is. This is Tim Benall of BenallofAmerica.com with another edition of Benall of America Audio. It is 5-6-2006. Welcome back to Benall of America Audio. Glad to have you back. This week it is Richard Dolan, Part 2 of 2. If you checked out Part 1 of 2, I'm sure you're dying to hear Part 2. If you haven't checked it out yet, go back to Benall of America Audio. Download Part 1. Listen to that. That'll catch you up to speed. For those of you that are up to speed... We're ready to rock and roll with Richard Dolan, part two of two. The subject matter is early ufology. We're talking about that. We touch on MK Ultra and Ewan Cameron, the JFK assassination, and JFK and ufology in general. We talk about the Project Serpo story that's making the rounds in ufology today, and we also talk about the Charlie Sheen 9-11 story that broke like a few days before we taped the interview, so it was pretty topical at the time. Plus, Richard previews UFOs in the National Security State 2. That's coming soon, and Richard tells us about the process of writing the book and what's gone into it and what it's going to cover and when it may be coming out, and all the information you want to know about UFOs in the National Security State 2 is in this interview. So it's all that, plus more side tangents and things we go down. You know how we roll here on Banal of America Audio. I don't need to say much more about the preview. Let's talk about who Richard Dolan is. For those of you who are unaware of Richard Dolan, who didn't catch part one of two, who just completely jumped in here in the middle, here is his bio. Richard Dolan was born in Brooklyn, New York in 1962. He holds an MA in history from the University of Rochester and a BA in history from Alfred University. He earned a certificate in political theory from Oxford University and was a Rhodes Scholar finalist. Prior to his interest in anomalous phenomena, Dolan studied U.S. Cold War strategy, Soviet history, and international diplomacy. In the year 2000, he published a 500-page study, UFOs in the National Security State. This is the first volume of a two-part historical narrative on the national security dimensions of the UFO phenomenon from 1941 to the present. Included are the records of more than 50 military bases relating to innumerable violations of sensitive airspace by unknown objects demonstrating that the U.S. military has taken the topic of UFOs seriously. Dolan has published numerous articles on anomalous phenomena, science, and the intelligence community for UFO magazine. In the year 2003, he helped found Phenomena, a magazine dedicated to leading-edge issues pertaining to science and society, and for which he continues to serve as senior editor and regular contributor. 
Dolan has appeared many times on television documentaries and radio programs on the theme of UFOs and government disclosure. He has been a featured speaker at numerous conferences, including the International UFO Congress, the International MUFON Symposium, the Aztec UFO Symposium, and others. His website is keyholepublishing.com. Let me spell that for you, www.keyholepublishing.com, K-E-Y-H-O-L-E, publishing.com. Check it out. That's his website. That's where you can find out more information about the book, UFOs in the National Security State. That's what we're talking about this week on Banal of America Audio. This interview was recorded on April 3rd, 2006. Richard Dolan, Part 2 of 2 on Banal of America Audio. So you think it may be possible that Heineck, um, he did the 180 on his point of view, but it could also be possible that he was sort of like an inside man at times, too? I think it's, yes, I think it's possible. I do. It's also, I mean, things are, are not always so simple. I think it's very likely that Alan Heineck genuinely evolved in his beliefs on this. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying that he, uh, you know, coldly, calculatingly said, okay, I'm going to, uh, now I'm going to have them believe me as a believer. As a believer. I don't think that that's how it works. I don't think anyone's so simplistic. Yeah. But, but what I do believe is that people, people find a way to convince themselves of things that they need to believe. Yeah. I once knew a person, for example, who was a sales rep for R.J. Reynolds Tobacco. Back, this is in the early 90s. I remember chatting with this woman. Really intelligent, very funny person, good sense of humor. And me being who I was, I, I needle people. I'm, I'm an older brother. I've got younger sisters, so I grew up as someone who knows, knows how to get under someone's skin. I mentioned in passing the name C. Everett Coop. Coop at the time was a Surgeon General who was all over the tobacco industry. I mean, they hated Coop. And I listened to this woman for 15 minutes. I mean, she had been so pleasant and charming and wonderful. Start going on this rant about Coop and then how no one proves, no one's proven that cigarettes are bad for you and, and it's just, they're just out to get us and, and on and on and on. And I thought, well, how interesting. And this is a person, her paycheck is signed by R.J. Reynolds. She's found a way to convince herself of the belief system that she needs to, to believe in. Because everyone's got to wake up and be able to look at themselves in the mirror and respect who they are. If you can't do that, then you've got to find a way to do it. Yeah. And so I think in Hynek's case, it wouldn't surprise me in the least that he's, he sort of, you know, allowed himself to, to believe in the reality of UFOs once he sort of put himself on the line publicly in front of the entire nation. So that's my thoughts, my two cents on J. Allen Hynek. <laughs> okay. Um, and... Uh, one another uh, little incident that sort of piqued my interest was um, there's an Air Force Scientific Advisory Board meeting, November 1965. The meeting's in Dallas. Uh, it's on the Colorado study that was about to start. Um, and Jacques Vallee, I guess he was there, he says that uh, he, he sort of intimated that, that it proved that the Air Force was more bungling than conspiracy. And you sort of ask the rhetorical question, um, could the Air Force really be trying to fix, still trying to figure out the UFO question? Maybe they're really that out of the loop? Oh, yeah. I remember, uh, I remember this. And, uh, yeah, it's, I, I think within the Air Force, what, what um, I think I probably have a better appreciation of now than I did even when I wrote this book is, 
the extreme nature of what we would call compartmentation yeah. or compartmentalization. It's not that I didn't, I wasn't aware of it at the time, but um, so then in other words, you know, something something like the UFO topic, which is, and I've, I've had people, very high level people, tell me this person to person point blank, is extremely compartmented. I mean, one scientist, a scientist who know, knows Bill Clinton and briefed Donald Rumsfeld, okay? Yeah. Said to me, in a one-on-one, -on -one, I had a four-hour meeting with this man who told me about alien technology and bodies and a whole bit. Oh, wow. That's right. And he said to me, this is so compartmented, you would be astonished at the level of secrecy that is involved with this. Yeah. So going back to the 1960s, you know, look, if you've got a public body that's investigating UFOs, but, you know, let's say you're the Air Force and you got this Project Blue Book, the last thing you want are for these people to have access to genuine, actual information yeah. that's going to um, upset things. And so you, you want to feed them only the garbage, only the stuff that really doesn't matter. And so you give someone faulty information or or inconsequential information year after year, yeah, they're going to think there's nothing to this, is all nonsense, and filled with crackpots. Um, so I think that's what happened. So, I mean, Valet's observation of these people, I mean, he, maybe he was just marveling at, at actually their uh, incredible level of ignorance. I'm sure he was. Um, but when you step back and look at the larger picture, this is not a case of, of bungling. And this is a big argument in the, in the 1960s, and it carried on through the 70s and 80s. Was it cover-up or foul-up? Yeah. Uh, a lot of people said, no, no, you're making too much of a big thing out of this whole conspiracy aspect. These guys, they just, this is a, a bigger topic than they can wrap their brains around, and they just don't know what to do with it. Institutionally, bureaucratically, they're not equipped to deal with it. I've never been persuaded by this argument. I think that... Um, you know, we need to give the U.S. intelligence community a little more credit. Uh, these are the guys who organized and fought the Second World War uh, quite successfully, let us add. Uh, this is the community that developed the atomic bomb and did a lot of other very impressive things. Yeah. Um, I think that, and, and that on top of that, based on the several hundred really good documents that we do have indicating serious interest in this topic, uh, I don't think you can argue that they were not aware of how important this topic is. I think, I think rather what you have to say is that important information was simply channeled in a very restricted way so that uh, the public elements of it, you know, were very safe and tame. Yeah. Now, in the, in the end of the book, you, uh, you make the case for uh, Donald Kehoe being the most important UFO researcher ever. Um, why don't you sort of speak to that? Uh, a little bit here. Yeah, I guess that's, I still feel that way too. Um, Kehoe wrote, he didn't write the first UFO book in the United States, but he wrote one of the first books, and and then he continued writing them um, through the 1950s. Donald Kehoe wrote five important books on the inside UFO situation. We have to remember he was a very well-connected man and who was fed a lot of 
uh, turns out to be valid information on the UFO phenomenon. Kehoe was the first guy to write publicly about the Robertson panel. He didn't call it by that name, but he knew within months that this this kind of uh, thing had taken place, and he and he wrote about it within less than a year uh, in in his next book. Uh, he wrote about a lot of UFO cases that only came out because his friends within the Air Force uh, were able to get some of these cases declassified specifically for him to use. Yeah. And that was a real coup back in 1952, especially. And um, and then, of course, he, he was the the real, you know, figure of NICAP that pushed and pushed and pushed for UFO openness. I think without Kehoe's contributions in the early 50s, it, it, it would have taken much longer for the uh, national security elements of the UFO phenomenon to really come out the way they did. Um, a lot of people have talked about Edward Ruppelt's book in the mid-50s as, as being the single most important early book on UFOs. That may be true. Ruppelt's book is very important, but as I, I maintain that, you know, by the time Ruppelt wrote that book, he had already written three yeah. such books on, on UFOs and was actually more um, pointed than, than Ruppelt was. And so Kehoe really paved the way for other people to write about this. Uh, during the 1970s, after the Condon Committee had sort of put UFOs to sleep a little bit publicly and uh, the whole conspiracy thing sort of went away and became discredited for a little while, Kehoe uh, was, was really not was sort of relegated to the sidelines. But then once again, with the Freedom of Information Act era in the late 70s, all of that became revived when people realized, oh, wow, there really are a lot of really uh, great UFO reports that have been hidden all these years. Kehoe was right. It was a vindication of him. Yeah. So yes, I think, I think Kehoe was a really important, the most important UFO researcher. And uh, I do believe the day will come uh, at some point in the future when when lots of people recognize this. Donald Kehoe, um, I actually I think it should deserve to go down in history as a great American, as a great citizen of the world. He fought the good fight for a good 20 plus years um, and I think was responsible for moving our knowledge significantly ahead. He wasn't the most scientific writer. He was a, a military guy who became a journalist, and his writing style didn't really lend itself to, uh, you know, academic circles and that sort of thing. So, but his his information, I think, has turned out to be very reliable overall. Yeah, and um, one guy who sort of pops up throughout the book. He's not really affiliated with UFOs, but he freaked me out big time. You and Cameron. Oh, a CIA mindbender of sorts. Uh, yeah, yeah. Tell me a little bit about this guy. I'm going to want to do more research. About sure. Him. Yeah, Cameron, um, he's not connected to the UFO controversy at all. And, and so you might ask, well, why even write about this guy? One thing I tried to do with the UFO controversy was to, to put it in a kind of proper place amid the history of other kinds of, of cover-ups. And, yeah. you know, you could say that was a good decision or a bad decision, but it was what I wanted to do at the time. And to show a reader that, in a sense, the cover-up of, of UFOs is really nothing unusual in terms of operating procedures. It's just how things are done. And, for ex example, I, I mentioned very briefly from time to time the story of Ewan Cameron. 
Um, and the reason is that because Americans in the 1950s had no idea of this utterly horrific program that the CIA was running, which uh, its main name was MKUltra. Mm -hmm. um, if anyone has seen the Mel Gibson movie Conspiracy Theory, uh, this, this is actually about MKUltra, and if you haven't seen this, kind of a cool flick. Um, but basically what happened was in the, in the 1940s and 50s and 60s, I guarantee you to this very day, but under different names, <laughs> Uh, the attempt was made to find ways to harness the human soul, basically to control a human being in their mind. And so this is why the CIA monopolized the uh, possession of LSD during the 1950s. I mean, if you wanted LSD, the only way you were going to get it in the 1950s was through the CIA. Yeah. They, they had control over it. And the reason that they did was because they were trying to explore its use as a possible psychological weapon like an interrogation tool, for example, as a gift theorem, whatever. Um, one of the other aspects of this effort in MKUltra was to, um, to fund the work of Ewan Cameron, who was quite arguably the most prominent psychiatrist in the world. He was a former president of the World Psychiatric Association. Okay. He was highly... Um, I was going to say decorated, but highly uh, uh, glorified in his profession worldwide. Everyone knew Ewan Cameron. And his facilities were up in Canada, off American soil, which made him very convenient indeed. And what happened was he invented this Frankensteinian type of procedure, which he started to call psychic driving. And basically, it was, he had this idea that if you came in, if you were a woman in menopause and were feeling kind of depressed, Cameron would say, hey, I know what I can do for you. Did you not? He had these the sensory deprivation rooms. The nurses called it the zombie room, where you would go in and you'd be deprived of sensory input for extended periods of time. Um, all the while, he was literally trying to erase your mind and fill it up with good stuff, <laughs> you know, stuff that he wanted you to to, uh, to believe. That's why he had psychic driving, driving home this. I mean, it, it's like out of Franz Kafka or out of uh, some whacked out Soviet totalitarian fantasy. Yeah. Except that this was funded by the CIA covertly through through uh, one of their foundations. Uh, human Ecology Society, something like that. Yeah, Society of Human Ecology. And this went on for years. And people had their minds irrevocably, irrevocably uh, destroyed by Cameron's work. Um, I mean, utterly horrific. And, and the thing about this, this is why I wrote about it. A, is that a lot of the very same agencies that were involved in UFO secrecy were involved in doing this. But B, we only learned about Cameron by a mere roll of the dice. And it was after the Freedom of Information Act era went into effect. One particular researcher, a man by the name of John Marks, was researching into this and stumbled across a couple of boxes that had not been destroyed. Financial records that led him onto the trail of MKUltra. When those records were all supposed to have been destroyed in 1973, yeah. By the order of CIA Director Richard Helms, he told his guy in charge of the project, a man named Sidney Gottlieb, he said, Helms had just been fired by Nixon. 
he'd given, been given a month to clear out his desk. Helms was like, oh my God, we got to get rid of these, these records. Yeah. Tell Gottlieb, destroy everything. Well, Gottlieb apparently did a good job and not a perfect job, and a couple of um, files pertaining to MKLs were remained. And, and that is how we learned about this program. Had we not, had John Marks not found those files, it is very probable, frankly, that all to this day that we would know of MKUltra would be allegation and rumor, unprovable, and so forth. Yeah. And so, you know, this is the nature of government secrecy. Richard Helms is also the man who said the first rule in keeping secrets is nothing on paper. Yeah. He knew what he talked about. And, uh, and so the same kind of thing applies with UFO secrecy. And the MKUltra secret was, was maintained very, very well for about 30 years, um, you know, when you look at the nature of the whole program. And in fact, all that stuff came out and then went right back into the background. Uh, yeah, the books exist in university libraries. You can look it up. But what about current stuff that's going on regarding mind control? Now, there's clearly a great deal that has been going on. These, these guys have not, you know, the world has not stood still. And research continues to be made. But try finding out about what, what the military is doing in this regard. It's, you know, not that easy. Yeah. So um, we're really, it's, we're in a scary world. Um, I'm very much an unabashed idealist. I, I feel like a throwback to the days when people believed in this concept of human dignity and freedom uh, and privacy, incidentally, yeah. and, and the right to know um, and to inquire into your government and, and to be a sovereign, you know, we the people. We are supposed to be the sovereign entities of, of this country. And uh, I believe in that. Um, and so, but what has been happening is the UFO cover-up has been one of the, the several knives in the back of that Republican system of government. Yeah. Um, it's not the only knife in the back. There have been other things that have been really bad for us, too. But, um, you know, for all of the very brilliant people who are out there writing about the things that are, are wrong with our society, and, and I mean, they're often right on, uh, a lot of these people are really not getting the significance of the UFO cover-up. They just think it's all kind of fantasy, and they're totally wrong. They're not appreciating this. Um, people who talk about 9-11, for example, as a very probable inside job, I happen to agree with that. But these people also are really not willing to look at UFO cover-up as something that's significant. And they're, in fact, they're afraid. They don't want to be tainted uh, with, you know, the crazy fringy people. When in fact, the UFO cover-up is very significant. Um, it, it has required the creation, or at least it's been assisted by the creation of a kind of secret government beyond the government. Yeah. I mean, think about something that's this important that is not allowed to be on the table of public discourse. And, and just stop and think about how significant that is. Something that is this big for more than 50 years that has been kept off the table. It's like this big elephant in your dining room and you're not allowed to talk about it. And so, um, and in particular, when one starts to uh, realize that there's very probably an enormous amount of money that has gone into this uh, research and development, money that 
some groups are, are making a fortune off of and basically you, know, you might argue allows them to control the dominant resources of the world. Yeah. And and we, you know, poor slobs are just kind of here out of the loop, uh, watching, you know, TV and commercials and uh, Jerry Springer and whatever else we're watching, <laughs> just kind of mind numbed by um, by a corporate dominated media system. Pretty much. Yeah. And that's what's happened to us. And so we've we've become a kind of I mean, you know. Years and years ago, people always assumed that fascism would look sort of like Hitler, right? You know, you'd imagine uh, the swastikas and the stormtroopers marching down your street, yeah. um, and the leader who would say that he's the dictator. And well, you know what? This isn't 1933. This isn't 1935. This is 2006, and and fascism looks a little different. Yeah. Then I think, and so Americans, in particular do not know, I mean, I mean this, they do not know how to recognize fascism when it's staring them right in the face. And that's why what I, what I call what we have an invisible fascism. Invisible because people can't see it, although they can feel it. Yeah. They can't see it because, A, they often don't have the conceptual tools to understand what they're dealing with because, A, they don't have much of a liberal arts education, B, they don't have time to think, they work in 56 hour weeks doing whatever they do, and they come home, have a beer, watch TV, and that's it. Um, but also it's invisible because, because major media absolutely will not discuss this because they are part of it. I mean, 95% of anything that you watch, see, or read uh, is owned by one of five corporations in the world. And that doesn't mean they're all saying exactly the same thing because they do understand the value of market segmentation. But but news is very highly managed. But think about this. If you want to manipulate mainstream news, it's a hell of a lot easier to do that when you only have five corporations to deal with as opposed to 200. Exactly, yeah. Which would have been the case 50 years ago. So it's actually easier now. And that includes Internet. Uh, yeah, there are still... Uh, sources like yours and like other internet sources out there where there is still freedom for people to to understand these issues. But increasingly, internet for people means AOL or their MSNBC homepage or whatever. Yeah, yeah. You know, corporate corporate news, which is really no different than the news that you get when you watch, um, you know, NBC on TV. So we've moved into, so our, our kind of fascism isn't 1933 fascism. It's a lot more sophisticated, no question about it, because our world is more sophisticated. Our technology is more sophisticated. Um, Americans wouldn't just, you know, sit on, on their asses um, if the, the president said, this is now a fascist state. I mean, who's going to be so stupid to do that? Who's going to be so stupid to have this revolution in your face? No, they'll have the revolution silently. They'll make it so that it's invisible, and that is what has happened. That is exactly what has happened. Um, one aspect in the book that you uh, sort of like purposely didn't get into much, and um, it's, uh, it's it's been beaten to death anyway in the esoteric community, so I, I think that was kind of what you said too in the book, was the JFK assassination. Is that so? Oh, yeah. Um, uh, I think maybe it's a, it's a, it's a, 
a ploy of the mainstream maybe to tie that in with UFOs and make it look like we just, everybody is just like, you find conspiracy under every rock. Um, but what do you yeah. think the assassination of JFK, what effect do you think that had on, on ufology and, and the cover-up? Ooh, that's, that's a really good question. Um, well, first of all, I guess I would say that there, there is no question in my mind that JFK was assassinated in a conspiracy. I do not, absolutely do not believe that uh, this was a case of a fellow named Lee Harvey Oswald doing this all by himself, or even quite possibly doing it at all. Um, I think that there is excellent reason to believe that, in fact, the CIA was involved. Uh, I think there's very good reason to think that Cubans were involved, because uh, Cubans who were involved with the Bay of Pigs seem to have been involved with the CIA to kill Kennedy. Mafia elements, uh, certainly through Jack Ruby. Yes. Um, and, and even, in fact, one thing I, I didn't fully appreciate uh, a few years ago, but um, you know, there are a number of future presidents who who had very very suspicious dealings with all of this, including a fellow by the name of George Herbert Walker Bush. Yeah. George Bush was in Dallas when Kennedy was killed. Isn't that interesting? George Bush knew the Cubans who were subpoenaed in the mid seventies for the JFK assassination by the House of Representatives. George Bush had an oil company, that uh, Zapata Oil, which was right off the coast of Cuba, one of its main places of business off the Cuban coast. George Bush uh, was involved in the Bay of Pigs invasion as a support. He, he donated two bo uh, boats, rather. One of them was named the Barbara. So Bush knew these guys. There's a, a memo that surfaced in 1988 when Bush was vice president uh, a memo from J. Edgar Hoover of the FBI in which Hoover stated, this is the day after, uh, two days after Kennedy's assassination, he was visited by a George Bush of the CIA. And Hoover didn't give the details of this meeting, but he did mention that it was about the Kennedy assassination. Now, this is interesting because officially George Bush was working for the CIA in 1963. Yeah. Officially, if you go into the, uh, you know, all the official records, he was uh, he was an oil man. That was it. And only became director of the CIA <laughs> uh, in the mid-1970s. You know, just jumped into that position out of nothing. Yeah. Uh, well, in fact, I think there's, it sure looks like Bush was CIA. Anyway, why would Bush be meeting with Hoover two days after the uh, Kennedy assassination? Well, if you're CIA and you just killed the president, one thing you might want to do is find out who else might have the goods on us and who do we need to watch out for to find out what their position is. Yeah. And Hoover was a guy who would have some knowledge about this. And one thing you'd want to do is find out is Hoover going to talk. And uh, it sure looks to me that this is what Bush's mission was to do, is to go and talk to Jay Hoover and find out, uh, listen, are you going to play ball with this or not? Yeah. Anyway, I think uh, the effect on, I mean, the, the Kennedy assassination, uh, we all know, I mean, this is a very, this was a very important moment in modern American history for so many reasons. Um, it's not clear to me, even now, you know, what its exact relationship with the UFO field is. There are, there are people who, who subscribe to the idea that I mean, there, there, there are disputed documents right now that exist, one pertaining to the uh, the death of Marilyn Monroe, for example. Uh, I've, I've got this document, and it looks 
I've talked with Nick, Red, Nick Redfern about this. Um, he thinks it looks legitimate. A lot of people think it looks legitimate. It was it's a, a document that talked about wiretapping Marilyn Monroe, and uh, an FBI document, and Marilyn Monroe's discussions of the UFO topic based on her conversations with Jack Kennedy. Yeah. And uh, the implication being that she was going to talk about this. And then the further implication, this, this memo was like a day or two before she died, I should imagine, in the summer of 1962. Um, and uh, it does, it certainly looks legitimate. Of course, no one, like a lot of these documents, is a bastard child. No one's claiming ownership over it. Uh, it just sort of leaked. Um, so if that document's legitimate, that, that puts a definite spin on the, on the Kennedy assassination because, and then you, know, you think logically, Kennedy would um, certainly want to be briefed on UFOs. All U.S. presidents, it turns out, I mean, they all seem to have an interest in this topic. Certainly the recent ones have a significant interest. Not, I don't know about the current president, but Clinton had a strong interest. Um, George Bush Sr., it's kind of like Cheney in the sense that he seems to have a lack of connection to it, but he's very tight-lipped about it. Reagan had an out-and-out big-time interest in it, uh, as did Jimmy Carter. Um, it's not unusual for a U.S. president to want to know about UFOs. And so uh, one would assume that Kennedy, at some point in his presidency, might have been interested in finding out about this. And, um, officially, I mean, there just aren't that many documents linking Kennedy to, to the UFO phenomenon. You have to go into the, the so-called majestic documents, um, some of which I think could very well be legitimate, but they are not of, of definite authenticity, and so it's, it's hard to know what to say about it. Yeah. So do you think the, the, the assassination of Kennedy sort of uh, helped to add, like, a chilling effect, at least for future presidents that, you know, if, if, he, if it had anything to do with UFOs, or if, even if he entertained the thought that it was like, um, you know, we can get away with killing the president, so. Yes, I, well, when you put it that way, I would say the answer is yeah, I think it did. Um, I've got to assume these presidents, you know, they're not dumb, and they, they know the capabilities of the intelligence community that they inherit. Yeah. Um, and I think they also, most of them seem to get an idea that they're, they really have very limited uh, control over that intelligence community, frankly. Um, and so, yeah, you know, they, they, all, they all seem to want, there, there's reason to, to think that they all want a briefing on this, but at least from what um, various insiders allege, uh, you know, not all presidents get all the information that they want. Uh, even the president can often be deemed to be, you know, as one insider put it, mere curiosity on the part of the president isn't enough to warrant him have, to have a need to know. Yeah. Um, and, they, and we have it on the uh, on the statement of, of Stephen Greer, uh, who did... You know, I mean, people have widely varying opinions about Greer. Some people absolutely hate Stephen Greer. Other people think he's wonderful. I've met Stephen Greer, and I've spoken to him a number of times. And uh, I would say, overall, I'm very sympathetic to what, what Greer has been trying to do. Yeah. Um, with some reservations, let me add. But, but Greer, in the early 1990s, did, in fact, organize a large number of briefings and meetings with high-level government officials 
to inform them about the UFO situation, and that's a fact, and he did do it. Yeah. And Greer did speak with a lot of high-level insiders, I mean, people very close to, to the president and vice president, um, and says that he was told a number of times that, uh, you know, that at one point Greer, Greer said that Bill Clinton felt that if he was to push this matter any, any more on UFOs, that is, that his life would be in danger. Greer said the same thing about Jimmy Carter. Now, it's hard to know how reliable those sources are. Yeah. Uh, none of this can be confirmed, but, and there are people who just say, no, Stephen Greer's full of it, but I, I don't feel that. I think that Greer, um, he, you know, I think to a large extent he's the real deal in that he's been able to talk with a lot of legitimate people who have been willing to talk to him about a lot of this stuff. Yeah. But it's, it's all unconfirmed. Yeah. All of it. All unconfirmed. Um, and, and now, with, with the Bush White House, it's so bad. Uh, in the a couple of months within 9-11, uh, Bush, Bush's people sneaked in an executive order that further, uh, I mean, gave added numbers of years to declassification of former presidential documents, like the documents of, uh, of George Bush Sr. and of the Reagan years in particular, yeah. were now given uh, multi, like 20-year, 25-year exemptions uh, for, for declassification. And that's important because the Reagan stuff was about to be <clears throat> declassified. And it was withheld from declassification. If, uh, importantly, a lot of those the people in the old Reagan team were members of the Bush administration, like Colin Powell, for example, yeah. and uh, Dick Cheney and, and Rumsfeld as well. So uh, very self-serving, but also in the long run, it's going to be very damaging because we're going to have a hard time uh, getting this information out, yeah. uh, the stuff that we had really helped. There had been a lot of Clinton stuff that was scheduled to be released in early 2006, and, and um, don't quote me on this, but it looks like this hasn't, this also has not been released. Yeah. I, I should check with uh, Grant Cameron. Yeah, we had him on, on that. Yeah, we, we had him on last uh, November, and he was talking about uh, that there was going to be a release uh, in the beginning of the year, but I haven't heard about it yet. Yeah, I, I'd like to ask him about that. He, he, he was actually, uh, he's more on top of that than I am, but... Yeah. Uh, you know, Grant had his own problems, as you, um, I'm sure, know. I mean, Grant, oh, yeah. Grant and I were, were scheduled to speak at the same conference in Los Angeles last uh, September. Um, I, I made it. <laughs> Everyone else made it, but, but Grant didn't because Grant wasn't able to get across the border, and he was stopped by Homeland Security in a very brusque, um, unfriendly way, but also, I mean, they opened up his computer. They uh, I mean, just said, no, you're not allowed in, and, and really gave him no good reason other than Grant was asked, why are you going across the border? And uh, unfortunately, he told the truth, which was, I'm going to speak at a conference. Are you getting paid for this conference, sir? You know, you have to realize, you speak at a UFO conference, they'll pay like 200 bucks, you know, $250. It's chump change, believe me. Um, so he said, well, yes, I'm getting an honorarium, which is what it's often called, and the Homeland Security guy said, well, no, sir, don't go there. Honorariums are for professors, and you're not one. Oh, man. And said, you know, do you have a work visa? <laughs> a work visa? No, of course he did not, and, and he was denied access to the entry into the U.S. At, at a time, by the way, when uh, 
a number of other journalists just so happened to have been denied entrance into the United States, journalists whose politics put them at odds with the Bush administration. Yeah. Um, so that's great. But anyway, Grant Cameron, if uh, people are not aware, I recommend that they visit his site, uh, as well as my site. My site is uh, keyholepublishing.com. Grant's is presidentialufo.com. Mm-hmm. Um, excellent website. Okay, now two current event things I wanted to ask you about. First of all, it's the talk of ufology right now, um, and that's the Serpo story. Um, it seems like everybody has an opinion on it. I wanted to ask you what you thought about it, um, and just the idea in general of uh, government cutting the government cutting a deal with the aliens of some sort. That's always been the rumor. Now it's now it's the rumor that there was some kind of exchange program, but for right, a long right. time it was a rumor of. Um, allowed abductions for technology or something. Um, what do you think of these? This idea of of uh, like the government cutting a deal with with the aliens, and in general, also this Serpo story that's now all of a sudden become big news. Yeah, the, I'm I'm familiar with this. Certainly, I'm I'm rather afraid of the Serpo story, and I'm afraid that it's going to become this big tar baby. Yeah, that's really going to. Uh, you know, damage a lot of people. I don't know. I could be wrong. Um, do I see it as impossible that there's some kind of exchange? I guess not. Um, the, the Serpo material, I mean, everyone, I think, would agree it's, it's very well written. It's presented in in a very intelligent manner. I mean, the guy writing the Serpo material, um, Serpo, by the way, is the name of the planet where supposedly these yeah. humans were, were sent and lived. Um, for, for me, there's very little that I can do with such a story uh, other than report that this story is making the rounds, and yeah. I, I yeah. do intend to do it briefly. Um, now, there's, there's the other part of it, which is the whole subterranean culture of uh, the rumor, let's call it the rumor mill, yeah. Of uh, of a deal that's been cut with aliens. Um, look, I I don't I I would not rule this out. I mean, I know that's that is kind of a fringy thing, but yeah. um, you know, there's there is what what I call the land of leaks. There are a number of high level people who have gone on the record to talk about a massive alien-based infrastructure, technological infrastructure. And, and maybe uh, if you have me on the next time, we can get into this, because this is actually the stuff that, I, that has been monopolizing my mind for the last several years. Uh, it's, it's been a nice trip down memory lane for me to talk about my first book with you. I, I've been working on all the stuff to succeed that in, uh, in my forthcoming book. Um, a big part of that is this are these um, many, many, many stories from seemingly credible people about deep, deep black technology programs, the purpose of which is to study alien technology and indeed alien bodies. Um, when you hear this one time, you think, oh, you know, that's okay, I can dismiss that. When you hear it two or three times, so four or five times, and then 10 and 15 times, and then, for, you know, many times from people who have very high access. I told you there's one scientist who's in his 60s, uh, knows a couple of U.S. presidents, and, and um, met with Rumsfeld. This guy is a high-level scientist. He's famous and said to me point blank, he knows for a fact, he said, I'm not speculating, I'm telling you as a scientist, 
at a deep, deep, deep levels of our national security apparatus that we are in possession of alien technology. And this guy said at least one body that I personally know about. Wow. I've spoken to uh, Edgar Mitchell, who walked on the moon. Edgar Mitchell says the same thing. Yeah. And he says this publicly. He, he said it to me privately as well. Talked about the nature of, he said, his, his two key forces on this. One, one is a general with a number of stars, let's just say. And another is a, a person of even more elite stature, who Mitchell won't say who it is, but both independently confirmed to him the existence of such programs. The general, Mitchell said, was, was charged with overseeing deep black research and technology programs and stumbled onto this uh, ET and uh, reverse engineering program, apparently, and said, how come I'm not running this? This should be under my uh, control, and knocked on enough doors and finally got the answer. Sorry, General, you didn't have a need to know. Yeah. He had nothing else to do except complain to his friend Edgar Mitchell. There are many other I, uh, seemingly, let's say, credible accounts from individuals. There's the story of, of uh, former Lockheed Skunk Works uh, CEO Ben Rich. Yeah. Ben Rich ran Skunk Works, probably the most cool, you know, cutting-edge aerospace uh, program in the world, at least that we know about. <laughs> um, these are the guys who developed the U-2 aircraft. These are the guys who developed the um, SR-71 Blackbird and the Stealth Fighter. I mean, and a lot of other really neat things. Um, ben Rich did have an interest in UFOs. We know this for a fact. He has a couple of written statements that were done privately in the 1980s. There was a public speech he gave uh, at UCLA School of Engineering in 1993. I know one attendee of that lecture. I spoke to at length about this, and Rich, Rich said at the end of it, he was basically just giving a standard history of skunk works, and then ended it by saying, we now have the technology to take E.T. home. This is in 1993. Some people who have absolutely no curiosity about anything in the world filed out of the room. A bunch of people hung around afterward and asked Rich a series of questions. And um, he said, yes, that's right. We have the technology to take E.T. home, and it won't take a lifetime to do it. I, I think what he meant was to travel, in other words, to yeah. start. Um, he also said there are, um, uh, you know, we really need to let this information out because the Cold War is over and it's a different situation. And he also said there are a number of people in the black who would like to see this stay secret. Um, you know, the, the person who was there said Rich was... He didn't say E.T. or alien explicitly, but yeah. that it was also very obvious that this is what Ben Rich was talking about. Um, and, and there are, I mean, I myself corresponded with a former high-level executive, very senior executive of Raytheon Aircraft Corporation, one of the main defense contractors, who also said to me, uh, it's a great book, young man. <laughs> and then, and then said, uh, incidentally, I saw a couple of UFOs myself, uh, two of which I believe were not ours. I wrote back to him, and and uh, sort of uh, in my inimical way, I said, "Well, what is it with you aerospace executives? All you guys seem to see these UFOs and have an interest in it, and no one talks about it publicly." And he wrote back and said, that's, that's basically right. Uh, we are, uh, you know, we don't want to get into that, <laughs> obviously. Yeah. But that, um, 
you know, this guy was, let's just say, right at the top of Raytheon for a number of years and said to me that, you know, they don't want to, they're not going to risk their, their public reputation by talking about this. No way. And also, uh, there's clearly um, classifications involved here. I mean, it's this information is, there are clearly various legal restrictions for people to just give up the information that they know. Yeah. So in other words, I guess what I'm saying is, to, to kind of get in a roundabout way to answering your question, is there a deal with aliens? Well, what, what I'm very, very sure in asserting, let, let us not say with 100% certainty, but let's say with 95 plus percent certainty, is that there is a substantial program in place right now by a very human infrastructure to study alien technology. Mm-hmm. Now, how did we get this technology? Is it all from crash retrievals? Or perhaps are there a couple of hand-me-downs? Are there a couple of trinkets that these other aliens maybe wanted us to have? Yeah. I think very possibly, yeah. I think very probably, yeah. This is me not being a historian. This is me being a, uh, you know, someone who's trying to speculate as reasonably oh, yeah, as I yeah. can on, on the stuff that I do know. Yeah, yeah. Well, the is I'm on a pinging question. Right, right. You, gotta, you have to, I have to separate oh, what I know from what I think it looks like. And, I mean, the thing is, we only know a certain amount, and then we have to, um, as long as we make that distinction, I think we're okay. I mean, I, I never want to come off as saying I know that such and such is true. Yeah. I'm uncomfortable with other researchers who do not make that distinction. Yeah. There are a number, I'm not going to mention them by name, but they're out there. Some of them are very prominent in the, uh, let's say, Excel politics disclosure field. Mm-hmm. And sometimes my name gets associated with them. And I'm really not associated with any of those people. And the reason that I'm not, to be perfectly candid with you and anyone else who wants to put two and two together here, is I am not comfortable with people who are not careful with their sources and who jump to conclusions that may be true, but you, you've got to be careful how you present this stuff. Exactly, yeah. And uh, I, I don't want to fall into that trap ever. Yeah. Um, and the final uh, current event question I want to ask you about, well, this is even more current than the Serpo story, um, and it's only, it's really not too, uh, it's not even UFO-related at all, but in a sense, kind of. Um, and that's this Charlie Sheen story that's coming out, Charlie Sheen. Oh, yeah, yeah. all about 9-11, 9-11 conspiracy, and you touched well, on 9-11 earlier. I, I know that, uh, yeah, Charlie Sheen has taken a lot of uh, grief from, uh, like, the conservative uh, media establishment over yes. this. Uh, I understand they're really all over him. Uh, listen, I give the man a lot of credit. My father uh, is a retired New York City police officer. I grew up in a family of New York City cops, and uh, he's retired from, the, from that and worked for seven years at the World Trade Center in New York City as a fire safety director. He wasn't just some guy there. He was oh, yeah, wow. an actual decent job. Um, because he was a bit older, he had Tuesdays off, and he happened not to be working on September 11th, uh, although the man that he shared his job with, a very nice man that I had met, was killed that day. So 9-11, I mean, look, it was it was personal for everyone, but it was it had a certain level of personal connection to me. I had been to the Trade Center with my family just a month before that whole thing came down, and I love the World Trade Center. I had been there many times. So as a result, uh, like a lot of people, I was, let's say, traumatized by it. And I really wouldn't look at 9-11 for a good year, year and a half after the event. 
Meanwhile, however, uh, and, and partly the reason simply was I had other things to do. I was I was new in the UFO field. I was trying to uh, get myself established in that and writing articles about UFOs, not not doing the 9-11 thing, yeah. uh, for which I didn't see an immediate connection to my field anyway. Mm -hmm. However, you write about conspiracies, people write to you, and I had a number of people would write to me and say things like, hey, Rich, you've got to look at 9-11. There's something going on there. This does not look right. For a long time, the answer was, hey, I'll get to it when I get to it. You may be right, you may not, I don't know. Well, I finally started looking at 9-11 in a thorough way in um, early 2003, mm -hmm. so a little more than a year after. And uh, the first book that I read was the best book I could ever have read on it, which was David Ray Griffin's very excellent The New Pearl Harbor. Mm -hmm. David Ray Griffin is a theologian, he's an academician, and uh, he knows how to write about this in a way that's not sensationalistic, yeah. uh, that really just asks the right kinds of questions in the right tone, too. Uh, Griffin, Griffin's book truly blew my mind. And what, what Griffin did that was so impressive was to just raise, he didn't try to answer all the questions, he just raised questions. Yeah. But one damning question after another. The thing is this now. There is no doubt in my mind that I have now, at this point, looked at 9-11 a lot. Mm -hmm. If you were to take everything that happened on that day and pick it up and drop it into another country, let's say China, yeah, right, Beijing, we would be looking at that and we would be saying, that looks very suspicious. But it happened here in the United States, and so all questions have been off limits right from the get-go. Yeah. There are some, a, a large number of absolutely bizarre uh, and suspicious things that happened that day that have never been officially explained. For example, a lot of people have talked about the attack on the Pentagon, and rightly so. There's a lot that's not right about that. One of, one of the main things is that the pilot who supposedly flew this 125-foot-wide Boeing 757, I mean, that's a big plane, yeah. who had been a student pilot who was trained on the tiny little puddle jumpers down in a Florida flight school, described by his instructor, incidentally, as an idiot. <laughs> He's got this 757, big, big plane, okay? Mm -hmm. He's, he's already turned it around 45 minutes into the flight is coming back to D.C. now. The maneuver he did as he approached D.C. was like this 7,000-foot dive in two minutes while doing a corkscrew 360-degree spiral sure. and then pulling up literally 20, 30 feet above the ground like Harry Potter on his broomstick. No radar guidance, finds a target, and boom. The thing about that is when radar operators in the D.C. region saw this and when they saw that maneuver on the radar, Every one of them breathed a sigh of relief because they said, oh, thank God, our fighter jets are here to save the day. Huh. Okay, this is not the move that you would get from a big commercial airline. I mean, just imagine, and picture in your mind, a big, big aircraft like this making such a maneuver. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. Now, did that aircraft actually make such a maneuver? Well, I have a friend who flies 747s, and I asked him, could you do that? with such an aircraft. I mean, this guy's an experienced pilot. He said, no way. Yeah. No way. He said, possibly a pre-programmed, uh, like, flight plan, mm -hmm. uh, which may, you know, maybe you can commandeer the aircraft to make it do that, possibly. So, now, I don't know the full answer to this, but I sure as hell would like to know what actually happened. And it just so happens that it, at least 
two cameras independently caught this event, neither of which had been released to this very day. It's been four and a half years. Why can't you see it, and why can't I see it? You know, I'm not five years old. I have the right to see this event, yeah. and yet no one's been allowed to see it. There was a camera, for example, on the roof of a Sheraton Hotel in D.C. that apparently caught the whole thing, was confiscated instantly, has never been seen. There was also a, a cam, uh, like a video camera at a at like this gas station right next to the Pentagon that apparently caught the whole thing somehow. That was confiscated immediately. These have never been shown ever since. Yeah. Now, you know, these by themselves do not prove that... Um, that it was an inside job, but you've really got to wonder. You have to wonder about the collapse of Building 7 in New York City in the Trade Center. Yeah. A lot of people are not aware of this. I'm sure many of your listeners are. Um, but a lot of people don't realize that there were seven buildings in the Trade Center complex. One of those buildings was itself a 47-story tall building, a big structure. And uh, that was Building 7. And that building came down in a complete, total collapse at about 5.30 in the afternoon that day, seven hours after the, the main event. Nothing hit that building, okay? What caused it to collapse? And the thing was, FEMA did a year-long study of exactly this question because it's, it's important. If you're an engineer, if you're an architect, and you get a steel frame structure that has a total collapse due to fire, that is enough to make you reevaluate your entire discipline. Mm -hmm. Because never in the history of steel frame construction had a fire caused a total collapse of a building. It never happened. It happened three times since one day. Yeah. Now, in the case of the two main towers, you could argue that the, the jet fuel from the jets caused a unique situation in which they blasted off the asbestos lining of the, of the beams, melted it just enough to get the, the so-called pancaking that famously is used to explain this. Yeah. This is questionable by itself. But you can't even make that argument regarding Building 7. Um, and so the question is, what caused that building to collapse? And FEMA's official conclusion a year later was, we do not know. Huh. And I'm like, you don't know? <laughs> I've seen the video of this. Yeah. The top of the building comes straight down, and then the whole building just collapses, just like it was a controlled demolition. Mm -hmm. All right? Now... Even that is not completely damning. You could say, all right, well, they, yeah, they did have to bring it down. And, in fact, there's good reason to believe they did. The former uh, landlord, uh, Larry Silverstein, seems to have said as much in an interview he did with a PBS. It was very cryptic, and he never repeated it. Yeah, yeah, I know. Um, so you might say, well, yeah, we did decide to bring it down because it seemed like it was unsafe. Okay, fine. But the, the point is this. You can't just wire a building with explosives in a couple of hours. It's an extended process, and it takes weeks and months, perhaps. You've got to you bring in scientists. You bring in technicians. Where do I put this explosive? Where do I put that one? You, ju you don't just go in uh, while the building's on fire, which means that the building would have been pre-wired. Now, the real question is, if Building 7, well, everyone in the world who saw Buildings 1 and 2 come down, everyone, no exceptions, in the back of their mind thought, wow, almost as if it were brought down in a controlled demolition, because that's sure what it looked like. Yeah. Um, and even if they were brought down in a controlled demolition, that also doesn't necessarily 
prove that it was an inside job. You could say, I mean, I can envision at least one scenario in which a responsible official is looking at this horror, right, and thinks, oh my God, if that building comes down in a way that's not straight down, it's going to cause even more yeah. damage, right? So you think, okay, let's just pull the damn thing. But we can never tell people. Yeah. Okay, maybe. Maybe. Um, but if that's so, I think, I mean, maybe I'm wrong here, I think people might understand. Um, it's a tough decision that would have to be made, but yet, but there's no hint from the government that this was even the case. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, what we know, and then, but of course, it's hard to, to give these guys credit when so many other things happened that make you really wonder, like, for example, why Norad seems to have gone to sleep all morning. Mm -hmm. You know, the Defense Department gave absolutely conflicting uh, explanations as to what fighter jets were uh, scrambled. Well, we didn't scramble any. Oh, no, we, we did. Two days later, they said, oh, no, we did. Because <laughs> uh, that was one thing that they, even the servile press did catch on. It's like, well, you didn't scramble any planes. Um, and then they said, no, 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 we did, but we just a little bit too late. Uh, in other words, the records on this were not clear, uh, you know, as far as what the Pentagon said. And, and just so much more. I mean, the, the steel, the beams of the, the Trade Center were not uh, allowed to be forensically analyzed. They were all just shipped to China and India as scrap metal before any investigation could occur. That that would have told you if the buildings were taken down at a demolition. And then, of course, you got uh, just the, um, the whole motivation. People say, well, why would the government do such a thing? And I mean, someone even asked this. It's, it's, it's sad to me that someone would actually have to be schooled in why why this would be an inside job. Yeah. There are all kinds of reasons. Um, all kinds of reasons for wanting, as, as Griffin called it, a new Pearl Harbor. Mm -hmm. And in fact, Griffin was simply quoting the uh, statement from, from a, a paper by Bush's team called Project for a New American Century, in which they said, you know, what we really need is a new Pearl Harbor if we want to get our agenda through, and the agenda being a massive um, militarization of the U.S. economy, uh, multi, multi, multi-billion dollar investment into space-based weaponry, and all this other stuff that both political parties, which are very warlike, would have probably wanted, except it was too expensive. And so what they needed was, they called it a catalyzing event, a new Pearl Harbor, um, the Patriot Act. What, what has happened in 50 years of UFO cover-up? UFO thing is, is relevant to this, and I'm absolutely convinced. Yeah. And it, it's, this is why. This is why it's relevant. Um, over a 50-plus year period, what we have had is a kind of evolution of our government, um, in which this, I call it the national security state. One, one writer called it the homeland security state. I thought that was pretty good. Yeah. Um, there are different things you want to call it, the shadow government, whatever. It's the government that's behind the government. It's not the official government, but it's increasingly powerful and has done an end run around our official government. Yeah. So we've had the evolution of this other structure of power that has incredible money and secrecy and latitude to do all the kinds of things it wants to do. And at a certain point in time, it, it becomes, no matter how silent you want this 
revolution to be, at a certain point in time, it, I feel, it becomes necessary to have, just like the stock market, there'll be a correction to the market if the fundamentals are not lined up with the realities. So, too, I think what we experienced with 9-11 was a correction to the political market. But it was one that the, the controllers felt that they needed to have. Yeah. They said, okay, the time has come. We need to come out a little bit more with what's going on here. But we need something to allow us to do it without people getting all worked up. Yeah. And so 9-11 allows us to do this. And I think that's exactly what this is all about. So um, what I think is that 9-11 is, in fact, America's version of the Reichstag fire. For those who don't know their German history, allow me briefly to describe what I mean. In 1933, Adolf Hitler was appointed Chancellor of Germany. He wasn't um, appointed dictator of Germany. He was appointed Chancellor by the aged President Paul von Hindenburg to lead like a coalition, okay, like Prime Minister, like Tony Blair, I guess. Um, a month and a half into Hitler's chancellorship, the German parliament, known as the Reichstag, was in flames. It was obviously a work of arson. Everyone knew this. Now, how many years later? This is 73 years later. Historians today are unanimous in, in what they would say virtual certainty that the Nazis indeed caused that fire. They blamed it on the communists, but they themselves said it. Um, and as a result of which, uh, passed what became known as the Enabling Act, which gave Hitler emergency powers, which just happened to last for 12 years, okay, for the duration of the Third Reich. That was the foundation of the Third Reich. Um, I think the parallels with our situation are absolutely real and profound. And even in the fact that it's been over 70 years and historians, they, they can't really prove, even now, that the Nazis set the fire. Yeah. And the reason is that the Nazis, I mean, we're pretty sure it was Reinhard Heydrich, Joseph Goebbels, and, and uh, Hermann Goering, who were the three guys involved in organizing it. Pretty sure. But, but these guys, they were pretty tight-lipped about it. They covered their tracks reasonably well. And so absolute proof is just not there. Okay? It will never be there. And regarding 9-11... We are, we're in the same situation. We're going to have a hell of a time trying to prove this. Yeah. It's going to be just like with the Kennedy assassination, in which, you know, it, it looks, smells, tastes, and, you know, whatever, like it, but you're not going to be able to prove it because uh, the, the absolute damning evidence just is being withheld from you um, because the guys perpetrating this are just too professional. They knew what they were doing. Exactly, yeah. Now, do you think with um, with Gene coming out and uh, with your sort of like, uh, with your research into uh, fighting secrecy and fighting cover-up, um, do you think this Gene thing is going to kind of be like all the other types of situations where it's sort of like a, a glimmer of hope and then we're going to get back beaten back down, sort of? Uh, I'm, so, well, you know, I'm afraid that that's probably most likely you know, one can always hope that yeah. this will not be the case. Uh, I, I, for one, would like to give Charlie Sheen all the credit in the world for coming out, for, for saying what he has said. I mean, he's a Hollywood actor, and and he's, I think he's an intelligent man, but the fact is, as a Hollywood actor, uh, you know, that's only going to go so far. Yeah. Now, the, the good thing, though, is that as a Hollywood actor, he's famous. Yeah. And so, 
he's going to get press, and and I think the best thing that can come out of what Charlie Sheen has done is that other responsible academicians, and there are some of these people, in, you know, who are in the established structures. Yeah. They are the ones who need, frankly, to put their ass out on the line and say, that's right. You know, I'm very suspicious of this, too, and here's why. And people need to be talking more and more about this. Without a true discussion of 9-11, we're, we're just doomed. I mean, this is the problem that, you know, one can easily have with John Kerry in the last election. Uh, I didn't vote for Bush or Kerry. I voted for the... I was one of 200 people in my county who voted for the libertarian guy. Nice, me too. Uh, Al Begmarek. Well, Al, Al was friendly with UFO disclosure, and I was totally down with that. Uh, plus, I, I do kind of like the philosophy. Uh, I did... At one point, I voted for Ralph Nader. Uh, I voted for different people. I'm a, I'm a fringy sort of guy. Yeah. But, um, uh, where was I going? Oh, with Kerry... You know, Kerry was talking the same nonsense as Bush was on the war in Iraq, for example. We're going to win this war in Iraq. I'm like, really? What yeah. dimension of reality do you expect to win this war in Iraq, dude? That war was lost the day that Abu Ghraib became an issue. And if people don't get that even now, and they got their heads stuck in the Iraqi sand. Right? That war was lost that day. Why there is that? No, hey, listen. Pretend that China were to say to America... Um, America, your weapons of mass destruction are really annoying us. <laughs> I mean, we do have a lot of them after all. Yeah. Uh, we're going to give you one month to uh, disarm. And America says, up yours, China, right? And then China, let's say they invade. Uh, they take over California. And they take over Alcatraz prison. And they start torturing Americans in Alcatraz prison. And they even beat an American general to death in Alcatraz prison. Okay? You think we'd have our own little intifada on the hands and we'd want to be beheading a few Chinese, by the way? I sure think so. Yeah. All right. The Iraqi people understand full well that the entire war is the whole ramp up to the war, that little tap dance Colin Powell did for the United Nations in 2003. All oh, that was a facade, a charade, a pack of lies. The U.S. media to this day can't get past the idea of faulty intelligence. What a load of crap. Falsified intelligence is actually true. Yeah. In fact, the day that Powell gave that press conference uh, for the UN, that little demonstration, he had all those, those po the uh, images, intelligence uh, satellite pictures. And, yeah. and as you recall, Powell said, well, you know, you can't necessarily make much of these pictures, but trust me, our analysts tell us that these are indeed sites of Iraqi weapons of mass destruction. It still happens that there were a couple of men behind Powell, members of the CIA's NPIC, National Photographic Interpretation Center. And I, I listened to one of these men speak on a documentary very explicitly. He said, yeah, I was there. That was a tough day for us because, A, we weren't allowed to talk to the media. B, we all knew that none of those images showed any hint of weapons of mass destruction. Let that sink in for a minute. Yeah. Now, are you going to tell me Colin Powell didn't know? Or Bush or Rice or Rumsfeld or these guys didn't know? Give me a break. Yeah. How stupid am I supposed to be? So, no, clearly the entire Iraqi, and the Iraqi people know this. They know Okay? They know that the war was, was a pretext. And it's uh, basically a grab of their treasury. It was a grab of the Baghdad Museum. It's a grab of their oil. Yeah. And who knows what else. Um, and so, no, there will never, ever, there is no 
way. You know, you, you can only cause peace in that country by destroying it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and here's Kerry. I understand, you know, he's a Democrat. He, people were kind of on his case because he wasn't hawkish enough, supposedly. So he's got to act and talk to, talk the game. But, but Kerry talked the same nonsense that Bush did. And um, some of my friends said, well, he's, he's only saying that because he has to. But, but Kerry had a chance to really uh, get, get into 9-11. But, of course... <laughs> you can only imagine. He, he would have been crucified on that. Yeah. Howard Dean pretty much was, because he kind of, he alluded to some stuff. Like Dean, that. yeah. Well, Dean was destroyed by his own party. Yeah. Dean was the one Democrat in that whole campaign who actually had guts, and um, and was really maliciously, uh, really destroyed by his own party. I mean, they, they caught him totally out of context. They had a, a microphone that was too close to him, and he wasn't screaming uh, like a maniac, like... Uh, like they made it out to no, be. Not at all. Yeah. Not at all. Uh, Nothing like that. Yeah. Howard Dean is the one politician, and his wife, too, and the people like in that whole campaign that I would, I would like to get to know. Uh, they seem like really cool people to me. And um, he got railroaded. Dean had the guts to say this war is bogus. We have no reason to be there. Uh, you know, and, and for that, the Democratic Party was not willing to abide yeah. uh, that leadership. They... Maybe rightly felt that he would get creamed, but but um, but maybe not rightly. You know what? What I discovered is um, in my personal life when I meet with people, people find out that I'm I'm a this UFO guy, and and then they find out that I'm kind of into this all this alternative version of, of reality. But you know what? People who they may not have a lot of education, they may not have a lot of time to research all this stuff that. But like we get into, yeah. but there is a true hunger in this country across the United States by people for this kind of information because you know what? They know in their bones that there is something desperately wrong with this country right now. They know it, and they don't necessarily have the knowledge, and, and so I think that, frankly, people are much more open to the truth than leaders tend to think. Yeah. And so it's like, it's a situation akin to like a tinderbox, you know, like in the old days, a dry, dry wood and one spark can just set it aflame. I think that is absolutely the case with our society right now. Mm -hmm. And we have a lot of other things that uh, can lead to, um, you know, a real rapid, unexpected breakdown on the structure of power, very much analogous to the situation that the old Soviet Union had. I mean, think about back in 1985 when Mikhail Gorbachev uh, became leader of the Soviet Union, and he starts talking this wonderful talk about glasnost and perestroika, openness and restructuring. <clears throat> in 1985, that was really radical stuff. And six years later, there was no Soviet Union. Yeah. The country was, I mean, I don't think anyone expected that. Yeah. That country went away. What happened? I think I have an idea. I think that Gorbachev's process of reform spiraled absolutely out of his control. You know, you can't have it a little bit. So he starts talking about openness, and the people in Lithuania are saying, hey, great, well, you know, if you're all for openness, to be honest with you, we don't want to be in your country. <laughs> yeah. You know, you took us over in 1940, and we were never happy about it. And Estonia and Latvia and all the other nationalities, and... Uh, and then the, the systematic falsification of history that occurred under Stalin, 
um, this stuff comes out, and suddenly you have a crisis of legitimacy. And I don't think Gorbachev was expecting that. The same thing here. We have a number of situations. Certainly UFO disclosure. And I, I started with this and then really finished my point like an hour ago. You start to, well, you know, that happened. Yeah. You start to disclose and and one thing is going to lead to another, and that's going to lead to another. Mm-hmm. And the next thing you know, you're in a completely different ballgame here. Yeah. And suddenly the most amazing conspiracy let's call it that, comes out and a lot of heads are going to roll. Yeah. And and it is just possible that in a situation like that, I mean, anything can be up for grabs. Yeah. And in a political situation, now, one thing I notice historically is, is across in other nations as well as the U.S., that during periods of political instability, these are the prime opportunities for UFO information to leak out. It happened, for example, in, I mentioned uh, in, indirectly in the United States in the 1970s at the Watergate. Uh, I think that absolutely is the case. It happened directly in Spain in 1975 when uh, Francisco Franco died. He was the dictator of that country for many years. And suddenly, boom, within a year or uh, within the next two years, hundreds of Spanish military UFO documents came out Yeah, and then, and then stopped. Yeah. Uh, in China, with the death of Mao Zedong in 1976, same thing. You had this period of openness that, and in fact, to some extent, you still have that in China. Uh, but you definitely had this flowering of, of UFO research in China on the death of Mao. Um, the collapse of the Soviet Union, you know, this extended political crisis that lasted several years, resulted in the release of a lot of Soviet UFO information. And that, that has stopped. Yeah. So you've, you get these windows, mm-hmm. these moments when something can come out. Now, let's say, I mean, because we are right now in 2006 in a situation that <clears throat> bears a lot of comparison to those other ones that I've just mentioned. And so is it possible that some other UFO information, confirmed information, can come out? The answer is, yeah, definitely it's possible. Yeah. And if it does, the thing that I... I think is that there's really there's not a lot more room for give here. Yeah, yeah. It seems to me that this is stretched. <laughs> this cover up stretched, but it's tiny. You can stretch it. Yeah. And any any more revelations that come out, I I suspect would have the potential of just blowing the whole thing. Yeah. Um. So I think I mean I don't think there'll be a voluntary disclosure if it happens. Uh, the government's hand will be forced. Something will happen, and they'll do it, and then they'll try to control the spin. Yeah. Uh, that's what you got to watch for. If, if there is actually ever a disclosure, people have to be very, very astute as to who is doing the disclosing and for what purpose. Exactly. Uh, I guarantee you, they're going to be that you know the the evil ones who are going to try. I mean, let's call them that. They're going to try to maintain control over this situation in a post-disclosure world. Yeah. Guaranteed, you can take that to the bank. Yeah. So I mean, some people in in this field um, think once we get disclosure, it's going to be a new world. Greer says this, for example, and uh, my friend Stephen Bassett, a lobbyist in Washington, says this. Yep. I I'm less convinced, frankly. Um, um, I would like to think it, but I think I, I know that I have a much more pessimistic attitude about humanity than either of those two, yeah. having spoken to them at length. 
Um, so I don't know. I think I don't want to be defeatist. Uh, I like to fight the good fight too, but yeah. uh, let's. I don't want to underestimate these people with money and resources and power. See, that's just it. They've got the ability to control spin, and when you do that, it's, it's going to be tough. Yeah. Um, okay. Why don't you uh, just tell me about the the next edition of the book? We uh, when we were setting up the interview, you said you were working on it. So uh, how about a little preview? And, uh, like yeah, sure. I'll, I'll do my best. Uh, I'm I'm actually in the heart of all of this right now. Um, one thing I will say is that the amount of data that I've organized for this book is many, many times the amount of data that I had for the first volume. And when I say many times, I mean literally six to seven to eight times oh, wow. of physical information. There's no way I'm going to be able to incorporate all of this. What I'm trying to do is distill it as best I can, kind of boil it down. Um, I, I think that that will happen successfully, uh, so that the net result will be basically a 600-page book that will deal with the last 30, 35 years of UFO controversy. Um, what I intend to do, I mean, the second book is going to be written in a very similar way to the first. Um, I intend it to be a companion piece of the first book so that it will take the story. You'll have um, a lot of it is, is a, a kind of history of MUFON in a way. Uh, and MUFON, the organization, will get a, a lot of attention in this new book, and, and rightly so. Um, there's uh, an awful lot of uh, information I've gathered on the posture of the U.S. military establishment with UFOs through the 70s, 80s, 90s, and in our own century. Um, the problem that, that I have for the last, let's say, 15, 20 years of that is, you know, you can't, you can't get too many government documents yeah. that are confirmatory about this. What you do have, however, are there, there are sources of information that are reliable. There are, there are journalistic sources, newspaper accounts that are confirmed. For example, there was the... Um, the very famous case of, of two F-16 jets in 2002, right outside of Washington, D.C., chasing an, an unidentified object in the outskirts of Washington, D.C. Uh, this was confirmed by the U.S. Air Force. We know what happened. So, I mean, there are cases, in other words, that I've that one can reliably point to as encounters by the U.S. military with UFOs, and I'll be highlighting all of those that are available to me. And there's a, there's a fair amount. Uh, I also... <clears throat> Uh, one thing that has just struck me is that there are several other kind of crescendos uh, attempts to obtain UFO disclosure. We, you and I talked about it in these last couple of hours. Yeah. In the late 70s and then again in the 90s. Uh, those will be fairly prominent in my book. Um, discussion of NASA and uh, whether or not we can reasonably believe there's a secret space program. Oh, cool. As a covert space program. Uh, I absolutely intend to be dealing with that. Uh, and possible covert nature of, of Ronald Reagan's SDI, the Star Wars program. I think that this is um, absolutely a valid point of discussion. And then um, um, the, the amazing explosion of, A, the UFO field itself in the late 1980s, early 90s. I mean, the field just blew up. Yeah. And, and this is a fascinating story. Uh, and indeed, the explosion of UFO evidence that has occurred really since the 1990s. I mean, worldwide, you have people now with camcorders, very conveniently accessible. Yeah. This was not the case very much previous to, to the 1990s. 
um, digital camera. There's got a digital camera. Everyone's taking pictures. The, the amount of photographic and video evidence that is available now, honestly, unless someone has looked into finding out how much there is, they'd be amazed. It's staggering. Yeah. It's staggering. Every day there are more digital pictures taken of UFOs. Now, the problem, of course, with digital evidence, everyone knows, you can't analyze a digital image the way you can analyze a film negative. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, you can do various types of investigation of some of these. I mean, you can. You can interview witnesses. You can, you can study the digital images. You just can't get the same level of forensic exactitude. Yeah. But you, you can. And so my point is that there is an absolutely astonishingly rich amount of UFO evidence. I mean, only in the last year have I really been going into the last five, ten years of this type of evidence. And it is, it's amazing. Yeah. Amazing stuff. Um, and then, uh, you know, a, a very, I think, in-depth discussion of of the likely state of our own secret technology programs in all the Area 51 type questions. The questions about technology in Southern California testing facilities, uh, Northrop and, uh, and Lockheed facilities. Uh, there have been a lot of air aerospace watchers in Southern California basically hanging out, not just at Area 51 in other words, but down in California, uh, observing and videotaping very, very um, exotic phenomena that appear to be advanced uh, human experimental uh, craft. Yeah. Um, so there's really there's a lot that's going on. And, and uh, you know, I, I intend to have a fairly extended uh, treatment of, of the Belgian Triangle uh, case of 1989-1990. I'm sure many people know about this. This is uh, one of those pivotal events in which a triangle was very obviously photographed and videotaped, um, a perfect triangular craft in 1989. Um, and then in 1990, a number of times, radar trackings of that object indicated maneuverability that is just off the charts. Yeah. Um, so I guess, you know, what I'd like to do with, with volume two is to, to present as I did with Volume 1, a good sampling of the UFO evidence, a kind of good first overview for any uh, intelligent person who's just like getting and saying, what, what, is, what do I need to know here? And I want to try to do my best to do that. That's awesome. Uh, and then and to provide political analysis. One of the main sub-themes is going to be um, how... Um, how I think. I mean, I'm going to try to argue that UFO secrecy as we've said here, has been one of the real problems with the death of the American Republic. And, yeah. and I do believe this. And so uh, I don't want to make this an overly political thing, but the fact is that it's hard to avoid. Yeah. Um, you, can't, you can't avoid politics when you discuss this. This is, yeah. is a political issue. Uh, and it's not a political issue in the conventional sense of a Republican versus Democrat or anything like that, but it is a fundamental political issue in, in the terms of uh, do world citizens have a right to know about this when other citizens in their world community have access to this information? Yeah. yeah. And when you uh, 
when do you expect the book to come out? Well, I'm doing my best. Uh, I've, I've um, really stepped into it by telling people it'll, I'll have it out by the end of this year, the end of 2006. I think that there's a reasonable chance that I can have it done by the end of this year. I am trying, believe me, like a madman yeah. to get it done. Um, Every time I think that I've got all my information, I, I run across something and I think, oh, damn, I've got to now work this in. Yeah. But I, I'm pretty much done with that at this point. I, I have to be done. Um, you could do that forever. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, have, I have a lot. Uh, a number of people are continuing to offer to kind of help me out and, and, and send me research information. I'm very grateful for that. And if anyone listening has uh, something useful, I would encourage them to email me. My email is keyhole, just like looking through a keyhole, K-E-Y-H-O-L-E, at rochester.rr.com. I would uh, gratefully accept good research leads. Um, but basically, I'm, I'm at the point where I just, I'm trying to write this thing now, get the text done. Yeah. I'll put some pictures in the book this time, and the first book cool. didn't have any pictures. And... Uh, and you'll finally get, go ahead. Get the mon monkey off my back. Yeah, I was just gonna say you'll finally uh, stop having people ask you when Volume Two will be coming. Out. Get yeah, yeah, yeah. Honestly, uh, there is—I cannot imagine. I really cannot imagine a project that will be more difficult than this one that I'm currently doing. I mean, not the first book, not any book that I, will, I think I'll ever write in the future is going to be as demanding as this book has been. Yeah. Uh, in the, the case of the first book, for instance, there was one previous example of a history that had been written of that period. Uh, that was the book by David Jacobs, The UFO Controversy in America, a book that was about half the length of my book, but still a good historical treatment. Um, in, in this case, there is no book. There's not a single real bona fide history of the UFO phenomenon of the last 30, 35 years. There, yeah. is. Uh, there are a number of good treatments of it. I mean, there are certainly smart people who have had insightful things to say, but there hasn't been a, a comprehensive overview. Mm -hmm. And to be honest with you, the, the database that I've compiled, what, what I've done is I, the way I was able to write the first book and what I'm doing for the second book is I compile a chronology. Yeah. So you go through hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of sources, and you sift through. I sift through what I feel are relevant facts, and then I take that relevant fact and I put it into my database in a chronological fashion with all the other stuff that I've accumulated. That, that's what I do. Yeah. And so that's how I was able to write the first book, and that's what I've done for this book. The chronology that I have amassed for this book is would be. A three thousand plus page book. Wow! <laughs> By comparison, the chronology I did for the first book was would have been itself a four hundred, four hundred fifty page book, which was quite substantial. And on that, I based my my book. But this is actually, it's just uh, it's just massive, and um, a lot of the information I had is kind of redundant from a lot of different sources. So that's okay, and it, it's not quite as big as it seems, but there's, there's just so much there. And I, I just can't imagine any other project that I could possibly do that would take more out of me than this and that would, would take as much of my commitment and energy as this, this book is now doing. But when it's done, I'll be very glad that it's done. I'll be proud of it, I, I hope. And, um, and then it'll have a life of its own. That's what happens with these books. They, they, the book gets out and you discover 
uh, as I did with the first book, that, wow, you know, this actually affects people <laughs> that I that I don't even know. And um, it's, a, it's a humbling experience, I have to say. Um, it's, it's one that I take very seriously, I do, that um, I don't know how other writers are, but for me, the, the fact that I know that there are other people, especially people who are younger than me, um, who may read this, and it might affect them, and it has an impact emotionally even on them. Um, I take that very seriously, and I, I, I want to do the best job I can possibly do. So I'm trying to get the book done on time, but I, I will not rush it needlessly just to crank it out. It's not going to happen. I think, though, that I can legitimately get it done by the end of this year. Nice, nice. Um, all right, and where can people get uh, the first edition, uh, UFOs and the National Security State Chronology of a Cover-Up, 1941 to 1973? That's what we've been talking about uh, the last three hours or so. Um, where can they get it? Just about any bookseller. Uh, yeah, like most major booksellers, I think, seem to have it. Um, or through Amazon. A Amazon is an easy one. Uh, like Barnes & Noble and Borders, they, they stick it in the back with what they call speculation and new age. Yeah. It really ticks me off, but there's nothing I can do about it. I think it should be with history, but they will not do that. Um, Amazon is easy. Uh, you can go to my website. If you just type my name, Richard Dolan, in a, uh, in a search engine, the, the top link will will probably be my website, and, and from my website, it's easy to link to Amazon. Yep. Uh, it's easy to email me that way, too. So uh, that's just probably a simple way to do it. Okay, and the website's keyholepublishing.com. That's, that's right. Yeah. 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 Well, just just that. search my name, and that's an easy way to do it, too. Um, and what, uh, anything coming up on the Horizon conference-wise? I've, um, I've gone kind of low-key this year on conferences. I used to speak in the years past. I've spoken many. This year, I've, uh, I've only and confirmed to speak at the forthcoming Crash Retrieval Conference, which will be in Las Vegas uh, in November, very okay. distant. And in fact, Ryan Wood has, has told the world that my book will be done by then, so. Oh, boy. Uh, we'll see. <laughs> Thank you very much, Richard Dolan, for appearing on the show. Uh, I really loved this book. I, I can't emphasize it enough. It's been one of the very best UFO books that I've read, and I've read a ton of them. So I would put it in the top, like, three of UFO books that I've ever read, and if you haven't read it yet, pick it up, check it out. It's an awesome book, and it's just really an education for anybody in the UFO field. It really should be required reading for someone who wants to know what's going on in ufology, find out the history of it. I, I, I'll be praising it all day here if I keep talking, so thank you very much for being on the show, and thanks for writing an awesome book. Tim, it's been a pleasure. I've enjoyed talking with you very much, so thank you. That does it for this week's edition of Ben All of America Audio Super huge thanks to Richard Dolan for sitting down and talking to us for so long, giving us so much time, two weeks worth of material, and just a veritable education in the history of ufology. His book, UFOs in the National Security State, check it out. If you haven't read it yet, you got to read this book. It is just awesome. And the website, www.keyholepublishing.com, that's where you can get more information on Richard Dolan. Also want to thank Leslie, Chiron, and R. Lee of BenAllOfAmerica.com. They write the columns for BenAllOfAmerica.com. They help me produce this audio series. Leslie writes Gray Matters on Tuesday. Chiron writes The K-Files on Wednesday. R. Lee pops in every few Mondays for The Trickster's Realm. Also check out the BenAllOfAmerica.com mothership, known as The Benall Report. That's posted Fridays at BenAllOfAmerica.com. We're trying to serve you... Amazing stuff every day, so go to BenAllOfAmerica.com. There's something every day for you to enjoy 
about the world of the esoteric that we all so love. I want to throw in two plugs here first. The theme music this week was provided by my old college friend, John Renault. He's an accomplished L.A. musician. You can find out more information on him at www.johnreno.com. I'll spell that now for you. www.john-renaud.com. I also want to give a plug to a contest that's being run by Leslie of BenallOfAmerica.com, her blog, The Debris Field, in conjunction with the Sci-Fi Channel and the TV series Ghost Hunters, is running the Ghost Photo Contest. We talked about this last week. Let me give it to you for those who missed that. The premise is, if you live in the U.S. and you think you have a picture of a ghost, you send it in. All the pictures are cataloged at the website you'll be getting in a minute, and at the end of the month, everybody votes and prizes are awarded so let me give you the prizes first because i know you, that's all you're interested in aren't you for the first place the winner the champion a ghost hunters season one dvd collection and ghost hunters key ring second place a sci-fi channel t-shirt and ghost hunters key ring third place a sci-fi channel t-shirt so there's real prizes involved if you think you have a picture of a ghost send it in check it out if you don't have a picture of a ghost go to the website and check out the ghost pictures so you know which one you want to vote for as the champion, the best, the ghost photo that rules your world, if you will. The website, to get more information on the ghost photo contest, how to send in your picture and how to look at the 12 that are already up, is ghostphotocontest.blogspot.com. Pretty simple. Type it in, go there, check it out, check out the pictures. If you got one, send it in. I know you want to win that DVD set. This is being brought to you by the Debris Field, Sci-Fi Channel, and Ghost Hunters, the TV series. Good luck to all who enter. Next week on Banal of America Audio, I cannot tell you his name yet. We are taping the interview on Monday. It is to be announced. I will announce who it is at the banalofamerica.com website, pretty much at the webpage where you found Richard Dolan Part 2 of 2. Scroll to the bottom of the screen. It says next week, and that says who the guest is for the next week. We'll fill that little portion in on Monday or Tuesday after we tape the interview, and then you'll know who's on next week. There's not much else to say, folks. I want to thank all the great listeners of Banal of America Audio. I've been getting your emails. I've been seeing the downloads. I know you're out there. I really appreciate it. It's your support and listenership and guest suggestions and you guys posting the links to Banal of America Audio on your blogs and your news groups and sending out the emails to people saying, check out this interview with blank. You're my street team, if you will, and you're getting the word on the All of America audio out, and I can see the growth in the audio series is tremendous. I want to thank all you great people out there for helping us out, and all the great listeners who are enjoying the Ben All of America audio series. we got a few weeks more rolling here in Ben All of America audio season one. As we head toward the season finale, it's going to be fireworks, folks. You're not going to believe it. Until you hear from me again next week, folks, this is Tim Benall, signing off.